thank you. So I was told I was going to be the last speaker, and I was ready for that. But when I came in, they said they were going to bump me up by two, because they saw my slides, which had a bit too much economics. And they were convinced I might bore you to death, so it's better to bore you in the middle. And then I managed, I don't know how, I think because I had two quick glasses of wine, to convince them that actually it was going to be an incredibly exciting and positive and optimistic talk, so I got bumped down again. So I've got some pressure here to make sure that that holds. Oh, clicker, here we go. And I've noticed that none of the speakers have drunk in a sip of this one glass of water. Is that right? None? Good. So that's mine. Uh, <laughs> um, right. So I am going to present the key ideas in this book as well as a bit of overlap of what I uh, talked about in the entrepreneurial state, which um, conveniently they're both sold to you downstairs. Um, now, it was interesting, actually, because Anatole said something about a missing slide, I think. Uh, you thought you had a slide that said something about how stories matter. And I don't know if they exchanged our slides, again, to make me sound exciting, but this is my first slide, which is that stories really matter. And I want to argue that the way that we currently are narrating, literally through the discourse, the vocabulary that we use believe it or not, across different political parties and across different segments of society, so from the media to politicians, but also how normal people talk about things like wealth creation and value is a huge problem. And in fact, it's allowing some of the biggest dysfunctions in the economy, uh, which is related to who's currently ruling in terms of, just think of the 1%, 99% uh, debate to stick with us, even after the financial crisis, when there was so much will for change, but actually so little has happened in terms of reforming the system. So the sort of key uh, takeaway is that how we talk about where wealth comes from is just as important as something very important that uh, Piketty talks about, which is why we need to really rethink how we're taxing wealth. But I believe that unless we accompany more uh, progressive forms of redistribution in terms of taxation with different ways we talk about that wealth, then any form of progressive redistributive policy is going to be short-lived. It's going to be really easy to undo by narratives and stories of, hey, I'm a wealth creator, reduce my capital gains tax by 50% in four years, which is actually what happened in the late 1970s in the US. Um, and in the book, I actually talk about this notion of a production boundary. Um, so this notion that some actors in society are productive, and some are either just sitting on their backs doing nothing, or at best just kind of redistributing existing value that's been created in these productive areas of society. And then I argue that actually that debate, and that contested debate, because actually over history there was fights about this, you know, who's productive, who's not, um, and I'll sort of give you a quick historical overview in just a minute, that debate has left us. And so ironically, it becomes much easier for value extraction, just in terms of sort of speculative finance, short-termism, as well as outright robbery, to present itself as value creation. So actually, value extraction isn't really that new. It's actually been happening for about 400 years, and there's great quotes, uh, some of which I'll put up here, of people accusing some actors just kind of moving things around and extracting value. But what's really new about modern-day capitalism is that that value and wealth extraction is veiled with these words about productivity and innovation and dynamism and creativity. And only by making the debate about, well, where does wealth come from? Who is actually productive? Who's not? And actually outlining that fence much more explicitly, rather than rendering it invisible, can we actually steer the economy 
in ways that is not so much productive, but actually produces the kind of outcomes we want. And we shouldn't forget that actually there's big ambitions out there, just think of the SDGs, right? 17 incredibly ambitious goals, 146 targets underneath them, as well as lots of talk about producing a more sustainable economy, more inclusive economy, and a more innovation-led economy. These are about goals that we are trying to achieve unless we make the debate about wealth and value contested again. It's going to be impossible, I guarantee you, impossible to really steer the economy towards these uh, uh, directional uh, goals because we shouldn't forget that the economy has not just a rate of growth but also a direction of growth. Um, and so I promise a, a bit of quotes, but this is a, one I love because it kind of keeps coming up every couple years. Ed Miliband has a great version of this. Uh, so this is Big Bill Haywood in 1929. During the big crash, he was founder of one of the first U.S. Uh, trade unions who was just really explicit about this whole kind of who's making, who's taking, and why are all the people who are actually making and digging out the gold, the, the gold making hardly any money compared to... Uh, 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 those who are just trading it, right? So the barbarous gold barons, they did not find the gold, they didn't mine it, they didn't mill it, but by some weird alchemy, all the gold belongs to them. So this is, again, just recall Ed Miliband's talk about productive versus predatory capitalism, where he was too bad, I think, told to shut up quickly because that wasn't uh, embracing of the wealth creators. He was actually told that by his own labor party, whereas I think that that actual discussion he was trying to uh, engender was actually a really interesting one that could have actually forced politics in this country to talk about some interesting things. This is not about, in my opinion, actually labeling some as predators and some as productive, but just that notion that actually we can do capitalism in a different way. We can have a more productive, more dynamic form of capitalism, I think, is an incredibly uh, ambitious uh, goal, and it should come back, hopefully. Um, and anyway, these stories about who the value creators are are everywhere. You hear about them all the time, whether or not you frame it in the way I'm framing it today. Um, it was quite extraordinary, actually, that right after the financial crisis, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, actually dared to say that the workers of Goldman Sachs were the most productive in the world after there was lots of evidence of how some of the investment banks, including his own, had contributed to causing the crisis. Um, so this, this kind of arrogance, this confidence, right, that you're seen as a productive force in society. And so, yes, of course, Goldman Sachs, the bankers, investment bankers, are such a productive, important force, even after all the documentation of how they had been a huge problem. Um, Google's, Google's uh, logo, it's, it's, um, it's saying that, you know, we do no evil. The kind of obvious thing is we do good. We, are, uh, we, we do good things. We are not just wealth creators, but we're doing great things for society. This is also part of a, a storytelling. Uh, during Brexit, both the pro and, the, and, the, and the, uh, you know, the ones who wanted to remain and the ones who wanted to leave, once it started to look like it was uh, happening, of course, immediately said, oh, we better be careful that it doesn't actually affect some of the most productive parts of the economy, so we need to ring-fence financial services. Um, pharmaceutical prices, I'll, I'll get to this also towards the end, just to nitpick at it, it's quite extraordinary that even though many people in the world die, not because they're sick, but because they can't afford uh, very high prices for essential medicines, the way that this has actually been justified is, again, through a type of narrative and vocabulary around value. There's actually something called value-based pricing, which is used by the sector to justify prices that are often thousands of times higher than the underlying costs of the drugs, and the opposite, 
uh, sort of storytelling around the state and all the government institutions, no matter how much you might like things like the BBC or the NHS or the Open University, this narrative that actually value is produced in business. Wealth is produced in business, and at best, the public sector can sort of facilitate, enable, de-risk, or you know, fix market failures inside the private sector. That's a story. That's a story with all sorts of vocabulary that we tell about where value creation can come from. And again, the notion that you can at best redistribute from a public uh, standpoint value that's created elsewhere. So I kind of want to argue that all these ways of talking about wealth and value are uh, uh, ways that we literally talk about it, but we can really talk about it in new ways. And it has to also be complemented by a new economic theory. And uh, K uh, John Maynard Keynes, who hopefully you all have heard of, he, he, he often said that, you know, practitioners on the ground who think they're just doing good and, you know, they don't care about high-level kind of academic theory are actually slaves of defunct economic theory. And so in order to rethink where wealth comes from, I do think that we need to do a lot of digging in terms of new economic concepts so that policymakers, these practitioners on the ground, don't get conned into thinking about some of these stories, but actually, again, make this notion of value and wealth contested again. So it's, it's not as easy uh, for someone like Blanky to make that uh, pretty ridiculous uh, statement. Anyway, so I'm not going to go into this history because I definitely don't have time, but you know, the notion of where value comes from has absolutely changed over the last 400 years. And you, it's not surprising that in the 1600s when governments were trying to raise revenue to fight wars like the 1651 Navigation Act, the notion that somehow value was nested in trade and exchange and taxation, that was sort of where they saw uh, value coming from, and this was called mercantilism. Trump, by the way, is sort of going back to that, thinking that somehow you can just put up uh, uh, trade barriers and that's going to create value for great old America. The physiocrats writing during the agricultural times when many countries basically got all their value from uh, farm land. It's, it's not surprising that they thought value was very much coming from farming labor. Again, much more complex than that. They even had the first Excel sheet ever, I think, through the Tableau Economique. The classical economists, and by that I mean people like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and uh, Karl Marx, who were writing during the period of the Industrial Revolution, said, no, it's labor, it's the factories, it's how we organize manufacturing. So Adam Smith, you probably know, wrote all sorts of interesting things around the division of labor, his famous pin factory example. So he very much nested his understanding of where value came from in terms of what actually happened in the factory. And the big change, and this is sort of where I concentrate some of the analysis, the critique, but also the new thinking that I think is needed, is how neoclassical economics, which is the name of sort of mainstream economics that we teach in economics departments all over the world, kind of reversed also the logic. In the classicals, there was this idea of value, okay, which, is, which was very much nested in terms of how they understood production, technological change, division of labor, and they used that then to come up with a theory of price. Uh, it was called the labor theory of value, but they actually differed between themselves, Smith, Ricardo, and, and Marx, and how that worked, to the opposite, theories of price, and supply and demand and maximization of behavior of consumers and profit-maximizing firms to a theory of value, okay? So we actually include in GDP today, which is the way we measure value in terms of national output, all the things that actually legally sort of have a price. Um, and this notion that supply and demand in terms of how much you want something also uh, reveals how much you um, 
value it is also uh, the way that uh, neoclassical economics, for example, looks at wages, right? So wages, instead of being understood in terms of the class struggle and you know, all the structural conditions around that, including, including labor's bargaining power, which was very much within the classical analysis and neoclassical economics, they talk about preferences of leisure versus work as being a central factor of the determination of wages. So this kind of individualization, subjectification of, of value is, is a big change. Um, I did have one quote. I had all sorts of other quotes, but I don't have time. But I just thought this was a very nice quote, just to give you a sense of how Adam Smith talked about it. He obviously had had a terrible experience at the opera somewhere, because when he wanted to say, you know, who were the unproductive members of society, unlike workers, he had two different types of opera uh, uh, workers. So opera singers and opera dancers are completely unproductive, but also basically everyone in this room. So, you know, lawyers, I'm sure, show hands, uh, lawyers, doctors, men of letters, that's us, professors, uh, players, buffoons, musicians, and all these opera folks. Anyway, it's, it's quite extraordinary just how much attention he paid to this whole notion of productive and unproductive. Um, I'm going to skip ahead. Now, what I want to argue is that when this uh, boundary becomes much more fuzzy and almost disappears because of this massive change in logic from value to price to one of from price, as long as you desire something and it has a price, to value, absolutely made this uh, boundary fuzzy and enabled then these stories of, oh, I'm a wealth creator, um, including all the talk about things like shareholder value, and in fact, value going from economics departments to business schools, where we talk about value chains and shareholder value and value-based pricing, to kind of take over and make it really difficult, actually, for policymakers to distinguish, is this really creating something new or is it just moving things around? Um, and I just want to kind of go over very quickly, I think I have three minutes left, um, four massive implications of this and how this is actually related to some of the biggest dysfunctions we have in modern-day capitalism. And that's basically how we account for things, so GDP. I'm literally going to give you the one-line kind of bullet point, uh, point on these things. Uh, how we govern companies, okay, so corporate governance. How we price things, like pricing drugs. How the data companies have fooled us all in thinking of them as tech companies, when they're actually just media companies. The technology is not, has not been invested in by any of these companies. Um, and how we think of the role of government. And I might actually have to skip one or two of those. Um, so first, GDP, as long as there's a price included. So this both throws up really odd things, like if you marry your cleaner, GDP goes down, because you know, someone was being paid to clean your house and now you've married that person, man or woman, you're no longer paying them, so bang, down goes GDP. But also, um, you know, all the things that we don't actually have a price for, so pollution, that might you know, not create enough um, uh, investment uh, because we don't actually value that investment in cleaning up that pollution. We just, uh, uh, um, you know, again, there's no price for it. But also, it's really interesting, and even my economist friends don't realize this, finance, the whole financial sector for such a long time was just seen as a sector that was moving things around. So just like we don't include social security payments into GDP, because it's just a redistribution of existing value, fi the, the financial sector was actually not included in GDP until the 1970s. Um, and until it started to really grow a lot. So just think of the whole kind of shadow financial sector, financial intermediation. It started to outpace the growth of the rest of the economy. And it's quite extraordinary how the UN and the systems of national accounts that they were setting up then on how do we actually calculate GDP in different ways. They said, this is getting awkward. 
this is getting awkward that we're not including a sector that's actually growing. And there was all this debate about that. And basically, they called things like what commercial banks do, financial intermediation, what big investments do in terms of risk-taking, formulated also some imputed pricing to that and started to include that in GDP. So when you don't actually have a notion that the classicals actually had of things like unearned income, so rent as unearned income versus how rent is, uh, this is economic rent, not the accommodation rent, as just some sort of imperfection towards a competitive price, it becomes really hard then to distinguish, well, which parts of finance are actually really contributing so, for example, providing patient long-term finance to companies that want to innovate versus just finance literally charging a price for moving things around. Um, corporate governance, this whole notion of shareholder value, which many people um, uh, like John Kay have criticized, and yet you know, not much has happened in terms of uh, 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 reducing the short-termism and the speculation that many have uh, argued that it engenders, it's quite extraordinary how it's actually built on a theory of risk-taking and, and who the value creators are. So only the shareholders are understood as the biggest risk-takers, and they're called the residual claimants. So when everyone else has been paid their guaranteed rate of return, workers their salary, banks their interest, if there's something left over, the shareholder gets that. So they're risking getting nothing, right? And this has actually then been used to also justify certain practices which many of us have criticized, which again is a big uh, um, 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 exemplary, I think, of some dysfunctions of modern-day capitalism, which is an increasing trend of companies not reinvesting their profits back into the real economy, but just buying back their shares to boost share prices, stock options, and surprise, surprise, executive pay. Um, and it's really hard to actually fight against this unless you really kind of debunk the underlying notion of who's taking risk, who's taking value, sorry, uh, who's the value creator, and creating this notion and stories around it of stakeholder value, so lots of different actors actually co-creating value, it's not just the shareholders, has to be nested within a, a different understanding of you know, who the risk takers are and who the value creators are. Um, and big pharma's pricing, this is almost the most explicit kind of you know, weird way in which value narratives are used to talk about pricing. Um, and it's basically, again, I don't really have time to talk about this, but it's value-based pricing is basically saying that pharmaceutical prices of medicines are basically what the market will bear. So what is the value to you of not having that medicine? And if you have a child, I've got four of them, if one of them is sick, I'm willing to pay close to infinity to make them not die, right? So this notion that somehow it's the perceived value of not having that drug that's driving the price is incredibly, again, dysfunctional when it's completely unlit, unlinked to the marginal price of that drug, which is often zero. And there's all sorts of ways that we can get pharmaceutical companies to recoup their investment through prizes and, and other things that many of us have been thinking about. Um, platform capitalism, you know, this notion that somehow Facebook and these companies just have to be regulated um, in, in order for the data privacy issues to be um, governed is also quite problematic because we shouldn't see ourselves as just regulating these tech, you know, wealth creators, but actually first understanding that the technology itself actually came from a much more collective effort. So everything in your smartphone that makes it smart and not stupid, internet, GPS, touchscreen, and Siri was actually publicly financed. And that, just admitting that, already kind of you know, changes the narrative. You're not intervening in the digital economy. We have to co-shape and co-create that. In the citizens' data, of course, that these companies are banking on and make lots of money every time you do a click is, of course, also collectively and publicly produced. So completely new narrative, I think, we need to do in order to rethink the future of the digital economy. 
And the opposite of what happened with finance happened in government, which is the stories about you know, wealth creation, which then drove the rise of the financial sector. It's quite extraordinary that the way we account for GDP doesn't even allow us, sorry, doesn't allow us to account for the value that's actually created by different services that are free. We only look at the salary, say, of teachers that goes into GDP, not the actual value that they're creating. And this, of course, affects, and you know, philosophers talk about this as performativity, how we judge the performance of something then affects what those actors do, which feeds back into the storytelling and the narratives and the theories about it. And governments have actually accepted this narrative that at best they can facilitate the existing value that's created. Um, what to do, this is my last slide, we absolutely have to rethink this stuff. Value is collectively created. We have to re-debate where does value come from between these different collective actors as opposed to sort of buy into the, you know, labor has to be business friendly because value is created within business. Business, public sector, third sector increasingly, but citizens themselves are co-creating value. What does that then mean for the relationships we set up? Markets themselves are outcomes of that. You don't fix a market, you think about what kind of markets and what kind of outcomes do we want and how they can be co-shaped and co-creative. And instead of going back to this old style production boundary, you're productive, you're predatory, you're in, you're out, why don't we actually really rethink how to reform finance to make it more productive? How do we actually get it to do what uh, Minsky talked about in terms of the capital development of the economy? We need to de-financialize the real economy by you know, getting companies to reinvest more of their profits back in, de-link drug prices from the perceived value towards much more uh, concrete measures of both the value we want from a care system, but also, also the costs. An ambitious public policy to co-create the value through regenerating this notion actually of public value and public purpose, which strangely is really strong in philosophy, but in economics we don't even have the word public value. At best we talk about public goods, um, and if we want a more caring economy, a greener economy, and what some people call a circular economy, we are not going to get there without rethinking this concept and allowing it to be less captured and more contested. Economics of hope. If we don't care about this, there's no point in doing anything. And I think because we're all in this room talking about these interesting things, we do care, and we have to bring it back to the center of how we talk.